Welcome to the Sunny Hill Podcast. This message was recorded at our pool campus. For more information about service times and locations, please visit sunnyhill.church. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Ah, uh, not so good. Cool. Happy Easter. It's good to be here. Well, I'm happy to be here anyway. My name's Dom. Uh, I've got the privilege with my life of uh, leading this church with a great team of guys and girls. And if this is your first time at Sunny Hill today, we want to extend to you a warm welcome. Uh, Maybe you don't believe what we believe. Maybe you don't think the way we think. Well, we still love the fact that you're here. We really do. We're just so thankful that you came this morning. And uh, we hope that you feel at home with us today. We're a church. We're passionate about Jesus. We love celebrating all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. And so at times we get excited and sometimes we get shouty. Sometimes we get dancey and uh, it's really because we've just found life and um, you know for many of us who maybe had a really kind of crazy life before Jesus we know how bad the bad news is and so because we know now that Jesus has saved us there's a sense of joy in our hearts and so we love to just worship God and we could do it all day long couldn't we Yeah, good. So, uh, you know, today is Easter Sunday, uh, where we typically look at the empty grave and think about uh, the implications of the empty grave for us. But I'm going to do it a bit different today. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone come back from the dead. Has anyone ever seen that? No? Not not one of us? Okay, you know, it's kind of a crazy thing. Um, I came close to it, right? And um, it may be surprising to you that even though, like, I may look like a really good pastor... I'm a really bad, what are you laughing for, right? It it may come as a surprise that I'm pretty bad at pastoring people because I just don't think all the time. And so I I don't know why God chose me and called me to lead Sunny Hill Church where there's so many great people and where I'm not always good at thinking. And so I get myself into trouble all the time, as I'm sure I'm going to do before this message is over this morning. Um, But I remember a few years ago... uh, someone was basically just coming to the end of their life on earth and I was invited by their wife to come to their hospital bedside and, and just to pray for this person, to pray for healing and, and it was really amazing, just an amazing experience and I remember going to the hospital bedside and as I'm walking into the room I'm thinking about how do I play this, how am I going to do this, like what does it look like to try and raise somebody from death's door, you know because in the scripture you see prophets like Elijah lying on dead people and calling them to life but I thought that's going to look weird if I just go into the hospital and like lie on a dead person like on a bed so I wasn't really sure as to how I'm going to do this and also I didn't know how the family are going to receive me in the room around me because obviously they're upset they're grief stricken and you know I really want to be sensitive to where they're at and and so I just come uh, along his bedside and I just hold his hand and I felt his frail hand in my hand and just felt as though life was fading from his hand and and so I just start praying and there's obviously family crying around the bed and I just start praying and I'm like God would you heal this man Would you bring him back to full life? Would you restore him completely? I mean, he was getting older and he had like a debilitating dysfunction, yet, God, I believe you can heal him. And just as I'm praying for him, I felt just something in my heart shift to where I needed to change my prayer to more of this type of prayer. God, actually, would you take this man to be with you? Because actually, he's excited about going to heaven. For believers who know Jesus and have accepted Jesus as their Savior, they don't fear death in the same way. And so I changed my prayer just a little bit. And I I kid you not, right? I'm not lying. As I'm praying, I feel his whole body just in my hands, just being lifted up. I've got my eyes shut because I'm thinking, God, you're doing a miracle. There's like angels just breaking through the roof tiles, like drawing this person, this saint of God to heaven. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And as, as he's going, I just 
feel like he's exhaling and he's trying to say something. And I'm like, oh man, God, he can see you. I'm sure he can see you. And like he's muttering, I'm sure, I'm sure this is it. God, I'm sure. And this is going to be an amazing story in years to come. I'll be able to preach to sell out crowds just how good God is and how I saw this happen with my own eyes. And then all of a sudden, his wife nudges me on the shoulder and says, oh, excuse me, you've got um, your knee pressed against the bed remote control. <laughs> and he was kind of being folded into like this legs up, body, body up. I never crashed the floor so hard in all of my Christian walk. I literally thought I was on the brink of the miraculous. I thought I was going to see him ascend to the heavens and I'd be like, oh, this is like Jesus again. Like, oh my gosh. But oh no, my knee had got in the way and I pressed the up button on the remote control and I don't know what he was saying. He was probably like going, you're pressing my button or something. Um, that's the nearest I've ever come to seeing one rise from the dead. And it was a great experience until I found out that it was all my knee doing all the work. Um, but it's kind of interesting because we're not always sure what to make of resurrection, right? And uh, typically, this is where we turn to one of the passages in the Gospels and look at how this played out. But I want to look at something slightly different today. And I've called this message totally prodigal. Totally prodigal. You may not understand what prodigal means. We're going to get into that, and hopefully this message will make sense by the end. But if you've got your Bibles, your iPhones, your iPads, turn to Luke 15. And uh, it's going to be on the Bible in the sky anyway, so you're going to see it above me here. Uh, Luke 15 starts like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners, now when you read that phrase, tax collectors and sinners, what you've got to picture is those who are most marginalized by society. People who are doing things that are visibly sinful, that are visibly wrong. Whether it be robbing taxes from the Jews or whether it be prostitution or whatever it may be, uh, these people, tax collectors and sinners, were identified as that because they were obviously living a life that wasn't in accordance with the law of God. So they were outsiders. But we read this. They were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I love that. I love that these people who had kind of been marginalized by society because of their activity, were alienated, yet they gathered around Jesus. They found some inclusivity in the messages and in the words that Jesus spoke. He didn't just come to cast judgment on people, saying, oh, you really shouldn't do that. You really should stop that. There was something in his message that was inclusive that people who were, I guess, shunned from society could be drawn to. And we read this. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law complained. So the religious leaders complained. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you know I've been ranting about religious people at times. Because to be quite honest, no one does my head in like a religious person. right? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law mutters this. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The audacity. You see, in the context in which this is happening, if you sat at table with somebody to eat, it was though as if you were giving them uh, an embrace. It was though you were accepting them into your world. And these religious people can't compute this. This Jesus, the begotten Son of God, this one who claims to be God, has come to earth. And rather than spending his time with us, talking to us about theological doctrine and theological truth and just navigating kind of the creation story and unpacking Job, rather than Jesus spending his time doing that with us, Instead, he's going to eat with tax collectors and sinners. It's interesting. These people love to be around Jesus. 
And so often I think in the church, we miss our PPI because we paint a picture of Jesus as some really boring, really soft-hearted, sheep-carrying, child-patting person that walks around, uh, I nearly said Middle Earth, that's Lord of the Rings, that's not the Bible, Uh, walks around the Middle East, kind of just going, oh, peace, peace, peace. But no, there was something gritty about Jesus that tax collectors and sinners loved to be around. It's amazing. I think so often we sell it this way, that Jesus stood out. He actually didn't stand out. When they came to arrest him, they paid one of his disciples to identify him because Jesus didn't stand out. He fitted in. Think about that for a minute. He actually fitted in to society in some way that people had to pay people to identify him. There was nothing majestic about his appearance that just gave this impression that he was the son of God. He didn't walk around with his halo and like hovering around on the ground. He was a normal dude. And so we see this in Luke 15, that the tax collectors and sinners like to eat with them. And I know that people who are in the wrong don't like to be around judgmental people. Which suggests to me that Jesus is far more interested in showing grace than showing judgment. That Jesus would choose to recline and eat with these people who have been pushed aside from society. Why? Well, Jesus is going to tell us now. Jesus tells us a story to try and help these religious people understand what Jesus is doing. And it's a story that we normally break into three parts. Sorry, it's a a story that normally we say a three-story, but actually it's not. It's one story, one flowing story from start to end that Jesus tells us that is kind of broken into three components. And the first story is this. Jesus responds to this. He says, a shepherd has 100 sheep. Bearing in mind that some of his listeners would have been uh, agricultural. They would have understood something of this. A shepherd has 100 sheep. One one sheep wanders away from the fold. Jesus, the shepherd, he says, the shepherd leaves the 99 and looks for the one. So this shepherd who has 100 sheep has 99, but one has gone wandering. And all logic and reason and rationale would suggest, don't sweat the sheep that has wandered away. It was clearly a stupid sheep anyway. Cut your losses, you've still got 99 because the potential risk that you run is by looking for the one, you lose another one from the 99, right? Jesus is saying, no, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes for the one. But Jesus unpacks the story further. He says, he does not stop searching until he finds it. Like this idea that, you know, if I'd lost a sheep, maybe I'd look for like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, even if it's a really good sheep, right? I'd look an hour, two hours, three hours. But Jesus implies this shepherd doesn't stop searching because losing the sheep is not an option to the shepherd. And so the shepherd looks. And as soon as he finds his sheep, we don't know how long it took, he picks the sheep up on his shoulders and rejoices because the sheep means so much to the shepherd to the point that then the, the, the shepherd comes back and gets to the farmers and neighbors and says, listen, we've got a party like it's 99, right? Because I found my sheep. It was lost, but now I found it. It's so valuable and I've got it. I've got all 100, I think. Let me just count. One, two. Oh, no, I've lost another 20. No, that didn't happen, right? He finds the one and he celebrates his loss. And Jesus kind of brings this juxtaposition. He says, listen, the same is true like this. When one sinner is found... Like, there's a party in heaven. Like, when I picture heaven, I, I picture heaven, like, fully systemized and agendered, like, 
heaven is advancing all the time on earth. Yet when one person, it doesn't matter how crazy, how silly, how dumb, turns to Jesus, Jesus says, like literally heaven stops in its tracks and celebrate the fact that there's another one over the line. Jesus then continues the story. And in this story, he platforms a woman. Now, this is a really toxic teaching because this is a misogynistic culture and society. The fact that now Jesus platforms this woman as a centerpiece of this story says that this woman has 10 coins. You know, roughly each coin equates to a day's salary. So she's got 10 coins, but yet she loses one. Jesus says, this woman, what she does is she turns the house upside down. She causes chaos in the house. She moves furniture. She gets a broom and she sweeps the house. And again, Jesus says she does not stop until she finds it. I don't know if you've ever lost 10 pound or 20 pound note. I don't know if you've ever lost 50 pound or 100 pound. I'm always putting notes through the washing machine. Not that I have lots of notes. I don't want you to get that impression like, woo! But five pound, ten pound, and then it looks like tissue. I'm like, oh no, the queen's head on that tissue. That's not tissue. That's money, right? But I just picture this woman because Jesus says this woman, when when she eventually finds this coin, she goes round her street in her neighbourhood and she says, look, you've got to come to a party because I lost a coin and I found it. Now, if your neighbour came to your house and says, listen, I lost ten pound, but I found it. Do you want to come over? We're going to have a party tonight. It's going to be epic. You'd be like. Now you're all right. But Jesus is trying to prove a point in the same way that there's a party about this coin that isn't really ridiculously valuable, but it meant something to the woman. She celebrates like there's no tomorrow because it meant something to her, the fact that it had been refound and restored. And so here we find an interesting thing. First, Jesus tells a story of a sheep. So an animal that has a will of its own, but is kind of not the brightest thing on planet Earth, right? And then he tells a story of a coin that is like an inanimate object, something that doesn't possess feelings or the ability to move away in itself, but somehow was taken from the rest of the money. Uh, And it's kind of interesting because then Jesus takes the story in a whole new direction. And I think at this point, this is where it captures everybody listening. Jesus continued. This is how you know this is one story in three parts. There was a man who had two sons. Well, all of a sudden now, you, you, your heart is more engaged. Especially for us in this kind of 2019 where we don't really look after sheep and we're not really worried about losing one coin in ten. All of a sudden now, Jesus is introducing this idea of a child. This man had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words... Dad, I can't quite wait until you die, and I really want some cash. I wouldn't advise you try that with your parents if they're still alive. Because if my kids did that to me, I would pretend I'm getting something out of my pocket, and then I'd kick them in the face, right? No chance. Get out of here. You're talking about getting your inheritance now. I'm still alive, little turd. Right, anyways, Father, give me my share of the estate. Amazingly, the father responds. So he divided the property between them. Half to the younger son, half to the older son. I don't think at this point he knows what the younger son's going to do, but maybe he does. Verse 13, we read this. Not long after that, the younger son got together 
all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Thus, a kick in the face would have served better than giving him his inheritance early. The word there for wild living actually comes from a Greek word riotous, which implies that he hit real lows. Like many scholars believe that like he was sleeping with prostitutes, he was doing crazy things, and he was squandering his wealth. Now, here's where the prodigal thing, can you just put the title slide up please? This is where the prodigal thing comes in. Because often when we hear of the term, the prodigal son, what we generally interpret that to mean is prodigal must mean the son who returns. The son who comes back. The son who comes to his senses and decides to come back. So often as a church, if you're not used to church, one of the words we use is let's pray for the prodigals to return. And often what we think is that, what that means is people used to walk with Jesus coming back to their faith, right? That's not what prodigal means at all. Prodigal means reckless. It means totally, irrationally extravagant, reckless. The prodigal son, it was his prodigal, not because he came back, but because he squandered everything his father had entrusted to him. He blew it all on wild living and parties. So he was the prodigal son. He was totally prodigal. He was reckless in his life. He was reckless with his resources. He was reckless in his relationships. He was just a reckless guy. And then we hit verse 14. After he had spent everything, so so on the one hand, there's the activity that he did that meant that he had no money left. We read this, there was a severe famine in the whole country. Here's the challenge, right? There's a measure of life that you are responsible for. There are a series of decisions that you can make that can either do you a misservice or can do you a good service, right? You can either choose to invest your money well or you can blow it on wild living. But there's some circumstances that come into your life that are totally unexpected and totally nothing to do with your decisions. This prodigal son has both experience. He spends all of his money and then a famine comes into the place. And I kind of want to say this. I don't know your story today. I don't know where you're at today. I don't even know why you're here today. Maybe you were dragged. Maybe you came willingly. Maybe you're sat in your chair going, who is this? turns in a flowery shirt talking to me like this, right? I don't want to be here, right? Maybe that's just what Phil's thinking, right? Um, But maybe that's your position today. Well, let me tell you this. Whatever you think you've got going on in your world, it's not guaranteed. Maybe you think you've got your dream job and you're smashing it on all fronts, like you've got the house you wanted, you've got the, the kids you wanted. Well, that's cool. What happens when you lose your job? What happens if you've got the dream wife or the dream husband like my wife's got, right? What if you've got the dream husband? And then what happens if something takes a bad turn in that relationship or health goes through the floor and a famine comes into your world that is completely out of your control? Then where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You're going to go back to the bank? What if the banks have crashed and the recessions happened? You know, there's always something that we can't predict and preempt that comes into our world and it robs us, right? And this happens with this prodigal, the totally prodigal son here. And we read this in verse 15. Because he was in need, he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country. Now, this is crazy. This son, a few verses earlier, was living it up in luxury, right? In his father's house, loving life. Yes, please. 
all the food he wanted, all the clothes he wanted, the authority he wanted, the influence he wanted. Now, because of his decision to try and break out of that early, he squanders his wealth, and now he has to hire himself out as a servant. This prodigal son once had loads of servants at his disposal, but now he's a servant. He's hit a new low in his world. And we read that the guy who was in charge of him sent him to the fields to feed pigs. Now, let's just lift out of this moment for a minute. Contextually, in Judaistic law, the pigs are considered the most unclean animals. And so Jesus speaking to this Jewish audience are probably like on the edge of their seats. You're kidding me. Like this son who had an estate and an inheritance, not only did he blow all of his money, but literally he hit rock bottom. Now, for those who are believers in the house today, right, I want to say this. Sometimes people have to hit rock bottom. Sometimes people have to come to the end of themselves. They have to pursue the dream of what's in their mind, even though you can see it as prodigal and reckless and wasteful. Sometimes people only come to their senses when they hit rock bottom. And so now this guy, he's not just looking after pigs. He's literally serving the pigs. He's feeding the pigs. Jesus is using this stark contrast from what height this guy has fallen, right? And we read, but no one, oh, sorry, in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Like, he was tempted to eat pig food. I remember once when I was about 15, I tried some hamster food, and it is rough. And I don't know why I tried it, but I, I just saw my hamster wasn't eating it. I thought, why isn't he eating it? So I thought I'd try it, and I was like, that's why he's not eating it. It's minging. It's rough. That's when I tried to introduce him to a burger. Anyways, that hamster died within about a month or so, and I don't know if it's because I gave him a burger or not. Um, don't worry, it was a leftover burger. I didn't want it. It wasn't a waste. So um, it's kind of interesting. No one gave him anything. Verse 17, like I just said, the bottom came out of his bucket and he came to his senses. Now, what does this revelation or epiphany look like to this son? All of a sudden, he realizes, and this is what he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. It's a really rational reflection on his life's lot right now. Like literally, even the people who are the lowest in my father's house have a much better existence than me. And he says this in verse 18, and I love this because I think we all do this. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Right? And I think sometimes when we're trying to kind of negotiate a relationship, whether it's challenging something we don't like or trying to say sorry for something we've done, we practice the speech in our head, don't we? We kind of say, right, when I see that person, if we wound up, this is what I'm going to say. right? Or if we're really happy and we're trying to kind of get the relationship sorted out. We go, this is what I want to say. I'm going to own my mistakes here and hopefully. And just in the same way, Jesus is picturing this human element to this prodigal son that is rehearsing and coaching this speech in his mind so that when he sees his father, he can kind of just speak it out. And he gets up and goes to his father. We read this in halfway through verse 20. But while he was still a long way off. Now, we're not talking about like, I don't know, 100 yards from home. We're within a mile from home. We're talking, he is a long way off, miles away, out of sight. He cannot even see his home. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, how is that possible? It's only possible if the father is proactively looking for him. 
I think sometimes we picture this son kind of just stepping over the horizon and seeing his home. But the original text implies, no, he is so far away. Home is like days, weeks, months away. Yet as he's kind of searching, the father sees him. And we see something crazy happen here. The father saw him, was filled with compassion. Thank goodness the father in this story is nothing like me. Because like, I would have turned to run and then, boom. No one with me in that? Good. Only two truth tellers in the church today, right? Because there's something that hurts, man. If your child comes to you and says, I can't wait for you to die, I want my money, and then goes and spends it. I mean, I might come round to forgiveness. And if you've got children, you understand how your heart would break in that. I might come round to forgiveness, but I'd at least want a good long conversation first. Like, hey, hey man, you know. I want you back, but you're a total jerk. So sort out your life, and let's get it right, and then we'll go back to... But it's kind of interesting, because Jesus is trying to explain the heart of this father so much that he gives this picture of this etiquette and protocol in the day that was totally broken. You see, in the Middle East, fathers were about dignity. It was a patriarchal society. So like the stiff upper lip. It was like, you know, I'm not really going to cuddle my kids. I'm not going to shower them in affection. You know, they, they know I love them because I work hard. And maybe some of you are like that. You know, it's not the way you're wired. You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily embrace your kids. Well, in that society, it was never seen. Like fathers embracing their kids was never seen. But here we see this. When the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. There was such a stirring in the heart of this dad. That's my boy. That's my boy. It doesn't matter what he's done. That's my boy. And so the father takes off and starts sprinting to the son and totally out of context, sprints to him and it gets worse. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now at this point, I'm just guessing the listeners of people listening to Jesus in this moment are switching off on this. Oh, that would never happen. Jesus is trying to paint a powerful picture. Because, well, we see what happens. The son said to him, I hope your hearts are checking in with this. Like, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So the son, the prodigal, breaks into his well-rehearsed speech, right? He's ready to go. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's almost like the father just totally misses what the son has just said. And he looks to a servant. And this is what, the, what it says. But the father said to his servants, quick. So I need you to get this. The son comes, delivers or tries to begin to deliver this well-rehearsed speech. And just as he's getting the words out, the father looks at a servant, almost distracted, cuts across this, this guy's kind of little speech that he's prepared and says, quick. And what does he say to the servant? He says, he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Like reality check for a moment. Has the father forgotten what took place? Goes on. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In other words, in the context, uh, Jesus is saying the father is trying to reinstitute reinstitute the, the position, influence, and authority that the son had before he ever left. 
He's trying to restore him to the place that he, he chose to leave. He's, he's trying to visibly demonstrate, listen, I've forgiven you, but not only have I forgiven you, I want you to prosper. I want you to flourish. I want you to have servants. I want you to kind of understand that this is your house. Even though there's only 50% because he's blown half of the inheritance. Even though it's lesser now, the father is keen that the son gets back in on it. And here's the big picture. Is that we often call this story the prodigal son. But what if we've been reading it wrong? What if it's the father who's prodigal? What if it's the father who's reckless and wastefully extravagant? Think about that. You see, we talk about this prodigal son who blows his inheritance on riotous living. What about the father who looks past all of the dysfunction, deficit, and offense that could have been caused by his son's sin and says, listen, you've come back and you're going to have a robe, you're going to have a ring on your finger, you're going to have shoes on your feet. It's the father who's prodigal. And by the way, if you didn't understand what's going on here, Jesus isn't talking about just some dad in the Middle East. He's using this picture of the shepherd and the woman and the dad to help the religious people understand the nature of the heavenly father. Reckless enough to leave the 99 for the one, to not stop searching until the sheep is found. Reckless enough to turn the house upside down to break furniture to sweep the muck out of the house to find the one coin even though there was still nine reckless enough to not just forgive a son that caused one of the greatest kind of sins against the dad that could ever happen reckless enough to clothe him in royalty again it's a prodigal father we're talking about it's a prodigal father tomorrow josh and caris get married and um, in the first service, they were here, so we prayed for them. And I, I spoke with him yesterday because I wanted to use him as an example. Because just as I was thinking about the prodigal son, I thought, wow, this is Josh's story. Josh was like an absolute tearaway for his mom. Heidi would get stressed out with him and she would often come to church and say, please, can you pray for him? Like he's hitting new lows, he's trying new things, he's, he's on drugs, he's in with the wrong crowd, he's doing all this stuff. And I didn't raise him this way, like I, I raised him in church, I raised him in this way, but he's just made so many bad decisions. And we would pray for Josh regularly. And a year ago, Friday, Good Friday, he came back to church after maybe four or five years of just doing his own thing. And Good Friday service, he came back to church. And the last time I saw him, he was kind of a nice little blonde kid. Now he's like some gruff plumbing bloke. And I was like, oh, hello. And, and that kind of made that sound like, oh, he's nice. And he wasn't that at all. Oh, hello. <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> um, I promise you it wasn't that. More like a, wow, you're kind of bulked up a bit. You look like a man now. Um, Shut up, Dom. It doesn't matter. Um, but on the Good Friday service, I remember after the Good Friday service, just talking to him for ages. And, and you know, he sounded like a trades bloke, and he was just talking his way. He didn't, didn't sound like Christian. Obviously, he didn't, because he was, he was, like, just from his world, you know. And then he came on Easter Sunday, and then the Monday after Easter Sunday, he gave his life to Christ. Maybe he'd given his life to Christ before, but on the Monday after Easter Sunday... He decided 
He came to his senses and he came home. His life has drastically changed in one year to the point that like now he's marrying one of our worship leaders. And by the way, if you come to Jesus, it doesn't mean you're going to marry a worship leader, by the way. Uh, We don't throw them in, (laughs) in the deal. Um, But like just a year, like there's still challenges that he's working through. There's still issues that he's got to navigate because God's doing a work in him. But the big picture is this, is Josh really wasn't capable of saving himself. But yet when he decided that he needed to come home, when he came to his senses, you know, I've had enough of living like this. God ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Because Josh is really the apple of God's eye. He's a son of God. In the same way you are. You're a son or daughter of God. And you may not realize that even yet, but this is how crazy it is. But just as I was thinking about this yesterday and thinking, oh, that's a great way to finish my message. Like, Josh, Josh is the prodigal son, right? And everyone knows Josh. Everyone can identify with Josh because they know what kind of a challenge he was and what God's done in his life. And just as I got excited about that, I felt God literally saying to my heart, saying, you're the prodigal son. I was so quick to see it in someone else. Oh, you know, he was a tearaway. I mean, flip, Lord, you did a good job. Well done. God's saying to me, have you forgotten? Now, this is where it's really important for you to understand today. Because you may have been in church for years. And Phil, do you want to come up and dance? No, just play. Um, You may have been in church for years. but, But you can still lack this revelation. Because there's another character in the story that I haven't really spoken about. The older brother. The older brother. And it's funny because remember the question that Jesus was asked. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus brings this younger son to represent the tax collectors and sinners. The dad to represent the heavenly father. And the older brother to represent the religious or the already saved, right? And Jesus says there's this older brother in this story too. And we won't go into it right now. Actually, we will. Can you put my favorite verse up? The brother is livid because the dad gets so excited about the fact that his son's home. He says, kill the fattened calf and let's like celebrate because my son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Like, let's celebrate. This is so good. I'm so excited. The older brother who never left is kind of left there with a chip on his shoulder. This is a flipping joke. In fact, we read, the older brother became angry. He refused to go to the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Look, you've got to come in. You've got to get this revelation. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 60 years. If you don't understand how much you matter to God and how much he will recklessly pursue your heart, then you need to have this understanding. Look, you've got to come in. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I served every cafe rota going. I played in the band every other week. I've been faithful to my wife. I've loved my kids. I've done everything right and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet, and this is my favorite line today in the Bible, right? This is so funny. Yet you never gave me even a young goat. I mean, of all the things you're going to ask for. A goat? I bet the dad was like, what do you want a goat for? (laughs) I love it. Look at it. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I just picture this like crazy party goat. 
Oh, here's Billy. He's crazy. He is. I mean, he's nuts. Get him in the party. He's mental. <laughs> Billy the party goat. That would be... <laughs> like, I just, I just picture this girl, like, raving. <laughs> Anyone tracking with me in that? Or is it just me? I find... I love verses like that. That just sound crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Your younger son blew its inheritance... And then you kill a fattened calf to have a celebration. Not one goat. Not one party goat. A crazy, horny goat. Never came to one of my parties. <laughs> it's literally the goat like opening a can of cider or something. White lightning, bottle of white lightning. Not one goat to celebrate with my friends. It's all good for him. You never gave me one Goat. <laughs> but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fat and calf for him. Here's the big hitter for you this morning, right? For every believer in the house. Listen, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Two things, and this is where I'll end. Maybe you've never walked with Jesus in your life. Or maybe you have walked with Jesus at some point in your life. Listen. It, listen to me. Just listen. If you haven't heard anything else, I say, listen to this. It doesn't matter what you've done. It, it literally doesn't matter how far you've wandered from the house. It, it literally doesn't matter if by the world stands you've, you've wrapped up the most heinous of sins. You're still a child of the king, right? Still a child of God. Which means if you come to your senses and just go, oh, I don't want to live like this anymore. The father's heart is so fixed on your heart that he will run and embrace and kiss. You're his child. You were never destined to eat pig food. You're never destined to eat from the bottom run of society. You were destined for abundant life in Christ. So that's an invitation for every person who either has never walked with Jesus or has maybe turned their back on Jesus in recent times, right? But there's another challenge here for every person who is currently walking with Jesus. To understand this, Everything the Father has is yours. You don't need to wander away in order to get a party to come back to. You should be living in a constant state of party. A constant celebration where you can mix it up with as many goats as you want. Not one goat you can. Not one goat to celebrate with my mates. Not one goat. And so maybe you're, you're kind of a believer, but you've just fallen into the root of religiosity and you've decided I'm quite judgmental and I'm kind of stuck and I'm unwilling to move and my heart's kind of become hard. And, or, you know, I get annoyed by the fact that church is constantly banging on about the one all the time and banging on about reaching people. And so oh, what about me? Listen, God wants you to know everything he has is yours. He's a prodigal father. He is extravagantly generous. 
He is recklessly forgiving. He is wildly in love, furiously in love with you. So I just invite you, I implore you to come to your senses even now in this moment. Don't wait until you've spent everything and don't wait for a famine to come into your world. You can make a decision today for Christ. And so I'm going to invite you to do that if that's what you want to do. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you down the front. I'm not going to make a big spectacle of it. I just want every head to be bowed. I want every eye to be closed because this is a personal issue between every child and their father this morning. So in this place of quiet, just in this moment, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one is looking. If you fit into one of those two camps where you just want to turn your heart back to the Father, or you want to turn your heart to the Father for the first time, or maybe you've just got stuck in the religious thing, and you just need a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit, and you want to come back and understand that God is inviting you to a constant celebration and party. Then I'm just going to ask you, I want to count to three in a moment, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. And I'm the only one looking. And the reason why I ask people to raise their hands is because I think, it's acknowledging before God your need for Him. That's what it is. It's deciding to respond physically to the invite that God's giving you this morning. And by raising your hand, I want to pray for you. And then if you want to talk after the service or pray after the service, I'd love to do that with you. But if you want to respond in that way today, I just want to invite you to raise your hand where you are just now. Praise God. Praise God. On count to three. You can raise your hand. One. Two. Three. Thank you to those who raised their hands. I want to pray for you now. Father God, I thank you today. This is the day of salvation. What do I mean by that? Today is the day that you preordained before the creation of the earth that your son and daughter would come home. Today is the day that your son and daughter would come to their senses and choose to return to their father. And Lord, I, I know, Father, that just because we give our life to you doesn't all of a sudden mean that life is roses. But God, actually, there is this resurrection that happens where before we thought we were alive, but we weren't really living we were living according to the parameters and the boundaries that the world has said, this is real life. But God, I thank you today that we acknowledge the resurrection is one of the most prodigal activities that a person can undertake to demonstrate how much they love somebody. Recklessly going to the cross. Extravagantly going to the grave. But death couldn't hold you. The grave couldn't keep you. And God, this morning, I thank you that because life reigns, we can reign in you. We can be raised to life in you. And so I pray for every person who raised their hand this morning. I pray, Father, that you would just, that they would feel your embrace, that they would feel you literally running to them and picking them up and kissing them. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you're a good father. And I pray as maybe people commit to a journey for the first time, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that they would know your hand of mercy and grace all the days of their life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.